Well, good morning, everyone. So good to have you here this morning. And if you are new to our chapel family, uh, welcome. We are glad to have you here with us. If you're new, what I would encourage you to do for me is out um, the sanctuary to the right is a welcome table. Uh, there is someone there now, um, or you could wait till after service. We have a gift that we would love to give to you, and we'd love to know of your attendance here. And if you have any questions about uh, what we have here uh, going on here at the church, please ask them at the welcome table um, or on the sheet that you received as you came into the sanctuary. It gives you some um, contact information on the back of the pastors and the elders. You'll have all of our email addresses there. I would encourage you to go and uh, reach out to one of us, and we would love to be able to connect with you. If you have prayer requests, once again, I would encourage you to go out to the Welcome Center, put a prayer request in. It goes out to our entire chapel family, and uh, those prayer requests are prayed over multiple times every week. So I would encourage you to do that. Uh, some things that are coming up. Uh, one thing I want to highlight is next week we're going to be starting an intercessory prayer uh, group just before service. That will be at 9 a.m. So for those of you that are coming to Sunday school, why don't you come a half hour early? I think they're going to meet in the um, in the conference room and do some praying, praying for the uh, service, praying for individual members. So I would encourage you to do that. Uh, so please join up. Prayer is always important. I know that a number of groups are praying among uh, one another, but it's so great to be able to get together and pray together as well. We have a lot of um, people in our church that are struggling. Uh, the prayer list is very long, so I would encourage you, if you have not signed up, sign up to get the prayer list. Uh, the chapel at nj.org is the website, which I would encourage you to use, and that will give you additional information as we are there. Psalm 73 says this, one of my favorite psalms. It says that in verse 16, it says, but when I thought how to understand this. He was struggling with envy. He was struggling with jealousy. He was looking at the world that was happening around him, and he was getting uh, confused in his faith. And maybe some of you are looking at the world that's going on around, and it seems like those that are godless are prospering. Asaph said this, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Maybe you're feeling weary today. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, he went into his church, and then I discerned their end. He got a new perspective of, of what was going on around. He wasn't seeing with clouded eyes. He was seeing with clear eyes. And he says, truly, you have set them on slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How they're destroyed at a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a, a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When he went into that sanctuary, he got a chance to see that God is still God. God, even though the world seems like it's such a mess. Though it seems chaotic and confusing to you, I can guarantee you that you have a sovereign and providential God who's in control. And then he got a sense to look at himself, and he says, when I saw my soul, my soul was embittered, and I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant to you. I was like a beast towards you. The second thing that happens when you come into the sanctuary, not only do you get a vision of God that he's sovereignly in control, you get a greater vision of yourself, of the struggles that you're going through and the difficulties. And then he went back to God with confidence. Watch what he says here before I pray. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. 
You hold my right hand, and you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And I have nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So as we come into this worship service today, I pray that we would put the world aside and see a sovereign God. See yourself for who you are, see the grace that he has provided you, and run to him because he loves you. Let's pray. So, Father, I don't know what the challenges are that people are struggling with. I, I know that Diana Kelly and Linda Matthews are struggling with a battle against cancer. I know Marty Nyland is struggling with a battle against cancer. I know that there are others that are struggling with immense things as well in this congregation or connected to our congregation. Lord, it's impossible for me to go through every one of them because I don't even know every one of them, but you know every single struggle that is here. And so, Father, sometimes we look at the world and we, we think that they've got it so good and we've got it so bad. Help us to come into the sanctuary and get a vision of you your son, your spirit. Help us to have a vision of ourselves that we are sinners, but we are in desperate need of your grace. And then help us to run to the gospel, run to your son. Lord, I pray that you would give us a greater vision and confidence of knowing that we have nothing else that we desire besides you. So today, Lord, as we sing, as we hear your word preached by Pastor Tim, I pray that you would be preparing his heart and our hearts to hear from you through him. And help us to boldly leave here to reflect you. In Jesus' matchless, holy and powerful name we pray. Amen. I was buried beneath my shame. Who could carry that kind of weight? It was my turn till I met you. I was breathing but not alive. All my failures I tried. To hide, it was my turn till I met you. Sing this out to him. You called my name, and I ran out of that grave, out of the darkness into your glorious face. Stay. 
rescue. My sin was heavy, but chains break at the weight of your glory. I needed shelter, I was an orphan. Now you call me a citizen of heaven. When I
sorrows. Just blood. 
blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me. Whom the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. Now my debt is paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Father, we continue in our praise and honor unto you, Lord. And again, we just are so thankful and grateful for the gift of salvation you have made available to us through your son. Lord, we thank you that that tomb is empty. We celebrate the cross for the work that was done for us. But Lord, that empty tomb sets you apart. And we, uh, we praise you in, in awe of your, your goodness and your love for us. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for uh, those that contribute, Lord, to making this place where we can come to hear your word, where we can sing your praises and glorify your name. We just pray that this reputation of the chapel, Lord, would be a lighthouse in the community that more and more will be drawn into the light to hear you, to know you, and to come to know you as Savior, we pray in thy name. Amen. You may be seated. I'll be reading two passages this morning, um, first in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name 
great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Second passage from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. All right, good morning, everyone. Great to be with you today. Um, just for our starting point in God's word this morning, I want you to turn to the book of John, the gospel of John chapter eight, and then I'll, uh, I'll direct you from that point uh, forward. Uh, my typical uh, approach is that I print out uh, my text and I usually focus on one portion of scripture. But for today, I wanna kind of expand that scope and deal with a number of texts that deal with the topic that we're gonna be looking at. I did want to give you one quick heads up on an event that we have coming in the month of March. On March 2nd, it's a Saturday from 9 to 12, a friend of mine, Nick Yizzy, long-term friend of mine and Doug Finkbeiner's, I think about almost 40 years, uh, Nick is going to be coming to do a financial seminar for our church related to long-term issues and aging issues. So you can kind of decide. Uh, whether that applies to you or not, if you have questions about whether it applies, you can just come and see me, okay? But Nick is a, a very highly qualified person in this realm, and it's just going to be two uh, one-hour sessions. We'll start at 9 o'clock and at 12 o'clock with a couple breaks in there. So I want to encourage you to be looking forward to that event as we uh, think about the month of March, okay? So <clears throat> I remember when I was uh, in college, started uh, listening to talk radio and started to hear uh, small segments, news segments that were done by a man named Paul Harvey. All right, so if you know about Paul Harvey, it tells us something about your age, maybe you're qualified to come to the seminar, okay? If you don't know anything about Paul Harvey, it's probably too early for you to think about long-term planning, okay? But Paul Harvey did a, a, a segment in the news, I think it was about two minutes, okay? And he would always start with these interesting facts um, that were intriguing and, and really interesting. And then at the end, he would kind of drop a name or the name of an entity that was formed out of the circumstance that he had described. And what he would say, you know, so, so the one I listened to the other day, I just went and I thought, what was the most popular one? And it was the story of the Boy Scouts. Okay, this, this guy's over in Europe, he gets lost, this young kid helps him out. 
He's a very wealthy man. He's inspired to do something with kids because he was so benefited by this kid. So, and so they tell that story, right? And then after the advertisement, Paul Harvey comes back and says, and by the way, uh, the, the entity that was birthed out of that experience with this man was the Boy Scouts of America. And usually like, oh, that's kind of cool to know, right? Because you, 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 you know about, in this case, the Boy Scouts of America, but you have no clue probably of how they began. And so what he would do is he would tell the backstory and then give you the rest of the story that made it all make sense. Okay, and that's very much the case when you come to study the story of Abraham. There is a backstory that leads to something absolutely glorious. But the best way to understand the glorious thing is to understand the backstory that leads up to and makes this even more significant and beneficial in our understanding as believers. So last week we spent time looking at the example of Abraham in the book of Genesis uh, 12 verses 1 to 3. We saw this, this example of Abraham's faith, his life. And, the, and, and what I want to do is spend some time looking at the rest of the story. So we see the nation of Israel called into existence by God. What we notice when we read through the New Testament is that Abraham's name is dropped a number of times and the specific promises to Abraham are dropped a number of times. There are references to the, what I'm going to call the primary fulfillment of the nation of Israel, Israel physically, Israel as an ethnic group of people. But there are also references to the ultimate fulfillment of those promises of God to people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Okay, so when you read Genesis 12, 1 to 3, you see God giving Abraham direction related to Israel, ethnic, Israel, the Jews. And then you find in verse 3 that he makes promises that have massive consequence. In you, Abraham, through your obedience, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Okay, and what I want to argue is that it's good for us to understand the story of Abraham. We went through that last week. But it is vital that we understand the ultimate end of the story of Abraham. Through his seed, ultimately, his ultimate son, Jesus Christ. Okay? So I want to work through this portion of scripture with this idea of the theme of fulfillment. All right? So when, when you read through the Old Testament story and you understand some of the pieces, you should also be looking for what did that story in the Old Testament point to in the New Testament narrative? In what way does my study of Abraham illuminate my understanding of New Testament text? Okay, so we would do that as we would read through the Old Testament. We would see that Jesus is, in this case, the greater Adam, a sinless Adam. We would see that Noah's Ark saves some, the cross of Christ saves many. So you start to see those pictures from the Old Testament have greater meaning and fulfillment when I come to the person of Christ. Because the Old Testament story is ultimately and always pointing to the work of our Savior Jesus. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, Jesus says this. He says, I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets. That was Jesus' way of referring to the entire Old Testament story. Not just the law that, when we hear law, what do we think? Ten Commandments. Jesus kept the Ten Commandments, right? That's what we tend to think. But the truth is, 
that Jesus comes to fulfill the whole storyline of the Old Testament. He comes to be what everything pointed to. So as an illustration, if you study the story of the kings, you'll find the kings are frustrating. Some are good and die too young. Some are bad and hang out too long. What does that cause me to long for? It causes me to long for a righteous king who never dies, right? And who is that? It's Christ. It's Christ. So, so I want you to, as you think about the things that we look at in Abraham, I want you to think about how the rest of the story helps me to gain clarity on what's happening in the beginning of the story when he promises blessing to people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. All right, there is a global, worldwide blessing that comes through the work of Abraham. So how do these promises find fulfillment, and what are the lessons that come to the church by the way of the promises that were made to Abraham? Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at four passages of scripture, and this has been hard all week because I've had to, you kind of spend a lot more time when you do this because you have to dig into all of those texts to understand backstory and to be able to present it hopefully in somewhat of a succinct fashion. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at four lessons that come to the church by way of the promise that was made to Abraham, in you all nations of the earth will be blessed. In what way, in what fashion does that become true? So let's first look at the Gospel of John and verse 8. Okay, here's what Jesus says, verse 56. He says, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, and he saw it and was glad. Okay, now that, so Abraham had an experience in the Old Testament story in the book of Genesis that anticipates the coming of Jesus in a way that is so profound that it causes him to rejoice. Okay, and I'm, I'm going to argue this morning that I believe that the, the episode in Abraham's life, the event in Abraham's life that gave him insight into the person and work of Jesus is found in Genesis 22, right? So the quick story on Abraham is that Abraham is called to follow God. He's promised a son that will be a blessing. He'll be the, the, the progenitor of the nation of Israel, but his wife is barren, and in regards to giving birth, Abraham is as good as dead. Okay? They don't have the capacity. God miraculously provides for them a son, and then later, that son of promise, God says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to ask you to do something. And it's a stunning account. I don't have time to go into all the backstory. But what God is going to do is ask Abraham to offer his son, the one he loves, his special, unique son. And so Abraham prepares to do the unthinkable, to take the son that he had waited for for years, the son of promise through whom all of the, the future promises will be fulfilled. He says, Abraham, I want you to take him and I want you to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And so Abraham takes his son and he begins to move in this, in this amazing picture he begins to move towards that mountain with his son and with wood. 
and with fire. And his son looks at him and says, Dad, I see the wood. I see the fire. Where is the lamb? And what does Abraham say to his son? He says, God will provide. Okay? And so Abraham trudges up this mountain, gets to the place of the offering, binds his son up, places him on the altar, is preparing to do what God has asked him to do, the unthinkable. And God says to Abraham, Abraham, stop. And in the, in the thicket, the text tells us there is caught a ram, and, and that ram is taken by Abraham. His son is taken off of the altar, and the ram is placed on the altar in place of his son. And we see a picture in that story, despite all of the, like all the things that pop up in your mind about that story, right? You, you, you see this picture of the fact that the life of Isaac is preserved through the substitute of a ram. And Abraham's response is, the Lord will provide. He calls that place, the Lord will provide. So what in the New Testament parallels that story? In what sense is there one who steps up as a substitute to bring forgiveness and freedom to those that deserve to die? Right, that becomes the, the file or the background. And I think it becomes very clear in the Gospels. In John chapter 1 and verse 29, John the Baptist makes this proclamation, right? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So in John, the, Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it when did he see it he saw it when someone else died for the freedom of another that ram gives freedom to isaac and he goes free just as the lamb of god bears away my sin and gives me the freedom from my sin and forgiveness that i so desperately need Abraham, when he, when he saw just that ram as provision, he rejoiced. And Jesus said, in some fashion, in some seed form, in some incipient form, in that aspect of substitution, Abraham saw a picture of an ultimate savior. How clear was his picture? I believe that his, his picture was very unclear in terms of details about the future, but very clear in the sense that one had died and another went free. And in that statement, Abraham saw a picture of Christ. Unknowingly, unwittingly, he was brought into an understanding of substitutionary death providing freedom for another, but he doesn't know the rest of the story till we get to the New Testament. And the lamb that ultimately dies is the person of Christ. And when he dies, John says this, he bears the sins of the world. His life is a substitutionary sacrifice for the benefit of everyone who believes. Abraham's response to God's provision is this, on the mountain, God will provide. And I think of Romans 8 and verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all in our place, won't he through him freely give us all things? And Paul, I think, kind of resolves there, right? 
this, the, the rest of the story in relationship to the story of the ram and Isaac and Abraham and this idea of sacrifice and one comes that delivers another from death. And so the first story that we get is we get clarity about Jesus' work and God's provision through Abraham's act of faith. The second account I want us to look at is in the book of Romans. So you can turn to Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. A man is not a Jew if he is one, only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward or physical. And, and by the way, I'm just going to say this, when Paul uses the word Jew, in the book of Romans, he is often using it as a foil for an understanding of the people of God. Those that are blessed by and accepted by God. Okay, so he's going to use it to speak of national Israel. He's also going to use it to speak of a category of people. Believers. So watch what he says. He says, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly. And that means that he has the physical sign of circumcision, which was the sign of being Jewish as given to Abraham. Nor is circumcision merely outward or physical. That, and the idea is that cleansing of the life is not primarily an external thing. It's an internal work of God in the heart. Okay. So Paul's, in a sense, taking a shot at this idea of I am externally conformed to what God wants, therefore I am in favor with God. And Paul would say, not so quick. He would say in verse 29, no, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code, not by law keeping is the idea. So what's Paul saying? He's saying it is possible to be Jewish, to have the external qualification without having the internal qualification of faith and trust in Christ. And what Paul really is warning against is this idea of being religious without having a heart for God of being a rule keeper who thinks that my standing with God is earned by my external performance, by what people see. And Paul says, no. The change of heart that makes you a child of God is an internal operation. Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be regenerated in your heart. And so in verse 29 Paul of, of Romans 2, Paul says, a man is a Jew is uh, no man, no, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Okay, that meaning our salvation, our, our participation in the promise given to Abraham is a matter of faith, not a matter of my performance or adjustments or law keeping in my life. And so it becomes very important that as we read this text, we understand that not every Jew is a Jew from Paul's perspective. Not all with external qualifications have the internal, internal qualification of faith in Christ. 
okay? So what do I mean? What I mean is this, walking into a church does not make you a Christian. Participating in sacraments does not make you a Christian. Paul would say you can do all of those external things. You can be nice to your neighbor, but it doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is that you have come into relationship with Jesus Christ, understanding that you are a sinner and he is a great savior and he has changed your heart by the work of his spirit. He has given you the gift of new birth and that your life will never be the same and that you will never be satisfied simply with external adjustments. In verse one and two of chapter four, he drives a little further. He says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter. If in fact Abraham was justified by works, external performance or circumcision, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? And here's what it says, Genesis chapter 15 and verse six. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham took God at his word. He believed God. He didn't believe in God. Right? Abraham wasn't a guy that just simply acknowledged the existence of God. Right? There are a lot of people who believe there is a God but have not submitted to his authority in their life. Abraham believed God. He took God at his word and experienced a, 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 a transformation of heart and experienced the gift of righteousness. He didn't earn it, he received it as a gift. It was given to him in response to his faith in God. Therefore, he has nothing to boast about, and neither do we as children of God. Now, look at verse 16 of chapter four. Watch how Paul does this. He says, he says, in light of this discussion about Abraham, therefore the promise comes by faith. What is the promise? In you, Abraham, all nations of the earth will be blessed. That in your final offspring, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and through his work on the cross, all nations of the earth will experience a blessing called forgiveness and salvation. He says, therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be, may be by grace and may be guaranteed to, listen to what it says, to all of Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, Jews, but also to those who are of faith, of the faith of Abraham, he is the father of us all. And then notice he drops Genesis 12, three, verse 17. As it is written, Abraham, I have made you a father of many nations. Okay, so that's that primarily it's Israel in the Old Testament and moving into the New Testament, but ultimately it's talking about a people of God from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And that's the beauty and the, the breadth of this promise. And what this promise reminds us of is that our standing with God is unmerited. It doesn't come by pedigree. It doesn't come by law-keeping. Praise God. It comes through the work of Christ. It comes when I go to God and say, God, I am broken. I am a sinner. And God, I want you to forgive me. And I trust in you. And in, in his unbelievable, amazing grace, he credits me with the status I could never have, the status of righteousness. 
which makes me fit to be in his presence. And where does that promise begin? It begins with Abraham. And when I as a Gentile trust Christ, as a non-Jew trust Christ, I am brought into the family of Abraham. I become a person who is part of the people of God. And what's beautiful about it is this. When I realize that that standing is based on no merit of my own, it makes me humble. It changes me. And it brings out of me, not a judgment of those around me, but a love and desire for them to know the grace of God in Christ. So that more of the nations of the earth will find joy and fulfillment and blessing in the ultimate offspring of Abraham. Abraham's promises in this text clearly come to us by faith. Therefore, our standing with God as a child of God's is unmerited, undeserved, and unearned. Folks, that is the beauty of the gospel that we learn from Abraham in Romans. I want you to turn to the book of Galatians. Okay, just flip forward. I think you got to go 1st, 2nd Corinthians, and then Galatians. Okay? There's a debate in this text that's happening between Paul and the religious establishment in Galatia. And, and, and Paul kind of lays out the essence of that debate in verse 2. He says, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit? That is the Spirit that regenerates, going back to chapter 2 of Romans, right? Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard, the message of the gospel? Paul's, Paul's question, I think, is pretty clear. Did you become a child of God's by your merit, by your pedigree, by your performance, or did you receive the Spirit by believing what you heard? Right, that's the question that fires up this discussion. Verse 6, Paul's going to use Abraham as an example of someone who believed God and was counted as a child of God as a result of that faith. Watch what he says in verse 6. He says, consider Abraham. And, and he makes this statement from Genesis 15, 6. He believed God, not in God, not about God. He believed God. He trusted God. He actively placed his faith and all of his life in the hands of God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. All right, so that what Abraham participates in is a gift from God that changes his eternal destiny and changes his personal identity. Verse seven, understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. And I think this will go back to the argument from Romans chapter two. Having the external sign of circumcision does not make you a child of God, a true Jew. But trusting Christ does make you part of the people of God, and it alters your eternal destiny. Understand then that those who believe God are children of Abraham. Verse 8, the scripture foresaw that God would justify Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. And I just, I, I, to me that is an amazing statement. Paul is saying that as you read through 
what God says to Abraham in Genesis 12 and following, that God is announcing to Abraham the story of Christ in seed form. It's essence. The scripture foresaw that God would justify and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. What is the gospel? All nations of the earth will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. Some of your translations accurately say the believer. So what's the point? The point is that the promise made to Abraham should prompt within my heart deep gratitude and deep humility. In, Gen in, in, in Galatians 3 verses 27 to 29, he, he ties this out a li little bit further. Watch what he says. You all, you, I'm sorry, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. So that if you have come into a proper standing with God through the work of Christ, you have become part of God's family. Okay, just let that settle in. By virtue of what Christ has done, when trusted by faith, apart from your performance, you become sons and daughters of God. Okay, that's verse 26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. That, that, that picture of external baptism proclaims a greater truth of putting on Jesus. As a result, verse 28 becomes true. So there is neither Jew nor Greek. So as Paul looks at the church, he is not thinking Jew and Gentile, right? And this is the way that Jews would refer to the entire universe, to all people. There are Jews and there are non-Jews. So when Paul says that, he's talking about all of humanity. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. And what would happen? <laughs> the Jews, the nation of Israel, will begin to assume a position of pride based on what? Based on pedigree. Based on promise. Based on Romans 3 says this. We should have respect for the nation of Israel because they had the oracles of God. The word of God came through them. They were his chosen instrument. And so we should have deference and respect for that nation because they had the oracles of God. They, the word that I know came through that nation. And for that, every Christian, Jew or Gentile, should be profoundly grateful. Right? So, so as a result, there is neither Jew nor Greek. That status of culture does not matter. He says, there is neither slave nor free. Now, is Paul saying that in the church there were no slaves and there were no free people? No. But he's saying that in the church, we are all on equal footing. And we all have access to all of the promises of God, despite our background despite our pedigree, despite our social status. There's neither slave or free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, and watch what he says. 
If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I want you to see is on a repeated basis through the New Testament, the promise given to Abraham bears weight throughout the New Testament. It does not bear weight for the nation of Israel nationally or ethnically. It bears weight for the people of God, for all who have trusted Christ. Okay, that becomes the, and that's why he can say there's not Jew or Gentile. We don't see things in that fashion in the body of Christ. But we are heirs according to the promise. Our status is not derived from our gender. Our status is not derived from our social standing. Our status is not derived from our ethnic background. Our status is derived from the work of God in Christ. And I believe it's for that reason. I'm just going to quote for you one one passage from Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says this, We are the true circumcision, people of God, who glory in Christ and place no confidence in the flesh. We went through this verse in my men's Bible study a few weeks ago on Monday night. What what a beautiful statement. Paul says, we, we are the, the, the children of God. Paul, who is it? It's those that glory in Christ, that believe Jesus. And as a result of seeing what Christ has done for them, they place no confidence in their external performance. They know that their standing with God is owing to a gift of God's grace that has come to them through the work of Christ. And folks, it's so important that we understand this truth that the benefits of being a child of God's are unearned so, no, so that all pride and advantage is obliterated. His benefits come to us. They bless us. They prompt gratitude. They prompt humility. And here's what I want to tell you. When you are living in light of the gospel, when you are living in deep humility because the blessing of God that has come to you in the person of Jesus Christ, you'll be the husband God wants you to be. You'll be the wife that God wants you to be. You'll be the child that God wants you to be. You'll be the coworker that God wants you to be because you understand on a daily basis that you're standing before God of freedom from sin, of a changed life is owing to a work of God's favor and grace, not through your own effort. So what does a true Christian do? A true Christian does what Abraham did. Abraham saw the day of Christ and rejoiced. And Paul will say in Philippians 3, we are the true people of God, the true circumcision. How do you know, Paul? We glory in Christ and place no confidence in the flesh. Folks, that is the evidence of true conversion. My hope is found in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. My hope is that he has by his blood forgiven me and that he has given me as a gift in response to faith, his righteousness. Therefore, I have a status, I have a standing that I did not earn. Therefore, I must, out of that truth, become a humble man who is grateful to God for the grace that he has given me in Christ. So those are the three lessons that come from the epistles and from the gospel. I want you to turn to the book of Revelation with me real quick. I want to look at the ultimate fulfillment of Abraham's promise that brings robust hope 
to believers. So Revelation, let's start in chapter 5. Revelation 5 and verse 6. And what, what I, the main thing I want you to see here is the connection between the proclamation about the Lamb and the reach of his work. Okay? So Revelation 5 and verse 6. He says, and I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing in the center of the throne. Now, that should just push you back a little bit. What does it mean that Paul sees a lamb standing but as if it had been slain? It means that for eternity, Christ bears in his body the marks of my forgiveness and salvation. And the lamb slain is the humble work of Christ, but the lamb standing is the lamb standing as a victor over death. He is standing, but as if he had been slain. So in the past, Christ stood on the cross, bore the penalty of my sin, and was buried, but rose again and now stands at the Father's right hand. And that's how this text launches into this discussion. Verse 9, it says, and this is just so beautiful, it says, and they, the elders around the throne where the lamb is standing, sang a new song to the lamb. What are they saying? You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. That is to unfold the plan of God for future things because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God. And I want you to notice this. Men from every tribe, language, and people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. So what, what is the reach of the work of the Lamb? Right? I think it's very, very clear in verse 9. You have purchased for God people from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. Folks, what is that? That's the promises of Genesis, of Genesis 12, 3. Abraham, in you, through you, all nations of the earth will be blessed. So I start to come into seeing this ultimate fulfillment of the promise of God. Go then to Revelation 21, okay? All the way to the end of the book. So we've gone from Genesis 3, now to Revelation 21. And what I want you to see, or the question I want you to ask, is there a connection between the promises that were given to Abraham and the fulfillment that's taking place in the, in the book of Revelation. Chapter 5, I think it's very clear. In Revelation 21, I think it becomes even clearer. Okay, let's watch what he says. And what, what I, I, I'm just, I'm going to tell you what I think this is. I think this is the promises of, made to Abraham, finding not their primary fulfillment in the nation of Israel, but their ultimate fulfillment in the people of God. So verses 1 and 2. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem. Okay, what does that mean? It means that the old Jerusalem finds its fulfillment ultimately in what? In the new Jerusalem coming down from God. 
Okay, and that's when I, when, I, when I talk about how the Old Testament finds fulfillment in the New Testament, this becomes one of those clear pictures of fulfillment. This is the new Jerusalem, the better Jerusalem, the one that was anticipated in the first one, but the first one fails and is destroyed. And it finds its greater fulfillment in this new Jerusalem, which has phenomenal characteristics. Now, verse two tells us, that the new Jerusalem is coming down prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. Jump to verse nine. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came to me and said, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Now, if you're literate in the New Testament, you should have an explosion going off in your brain now. Okay? And it should be Ephesians 25, verses 25 and following. That the new Jerusalem coming down, prepared as a bride, finds its likeness in the bride of Christ, the church. Right? Husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church and gave himself up for Paul says, I tell you, the mystery is what? Christ and the church, which I believe is the ultimate aim of the promise given to Abraham in you, all nations shall be blessed. And I want to tweak this out for you, okay? So, so Okay, so let's, let's just work through this, this multinational scope in Revelation 21. The bride, the wife of the lamb, and then 12 through 14. I want you to focus on two key aspects of these verses. It says, this city had a great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. And watch what happens next. On those gates of the city that I believe is a clear reference to what Paul is saying in Ephesians 5 are written on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And he says there's three, there's four, there's three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. That's 12. The wall of this city had 12 foundations. And on them were written the names of the 12 apostles. Okay, that becomes interesting, right? Because what is this? This is the future outworking of God's plans and promises. The new Jerusalem is the place where the people of God will dwell and enjoy him and love him forever. And the gates had the names of the tribes of Israel and the foundation stones had the names of the 12 apostles. So what has happened? I believe what has happened is the promise to Abraham in this picture finds its ultimate fulfillment. Not in a physical city on earth. Well, not on the old earth, okay? It's on the new heaven and new earth. 
but this city bears on it the names of the 12 tribes and the names of the 12 apostles, which means what? There has been this fulfillment of the promise to Abraham in the church, and it includes the nation of Israel. It's bound up in this picture. That is not to say that there are not other relevant truths about the nation of Israel throughout the Gospels and throughout the Old Testament. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying to you is that there is an ultimate picture of God that becomes undeniable that the future of the people of God is this city made up of people, believers from Israel and believers from all nations. And I believe in this beautifully is fulfilled the promise given to Abraham. Now, I wanna, I wanna push one other button real quick. Go back to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. And I want you to see how Abraham lived in the land of promise, yet longed for an ultimate and greater fulfillment. Hebrews 11, eight to nine. It says, but by faith Abraham, when he, was go, when he was called to go to a place that he would later receive as his, as his inheritance, he obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, what did he do? He made his home in the promised land. But watch yet lived like a stranger in a foreign country. He got to the promised land, but he never built a house there. He lived in tents. And the question is, Abraham, why? Why? What, what was the message of your sojourn? He lived like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. Why, Abraham? Four, verse 10, he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So let's just let that settle in. Abraham lived fully conscious of the full ultimate promises of God and understood that when God promised him a city, he was also promising him something beyond that, something greater, something more significant, in which it would not only be Jews in Jerusalem, but Jews and Gentiles in the new Jerusalem with the names of the apostles and the 12 tribes inscribed, because that is the ultimate promise of God. If you're here this morning and you're a Gentile, you're a non-Jew, which I, I believe most of us are, the little research this week, there are 16 million Jews living on the planet. Seven plus million of them live in Israel. Six million of them live in America. It's Israel, the population of Jews in the world is only about, from what I can best see, about 30% higher than the population of the state of Pennsylvania. Think about that. And yet that nation occupies a significant part in what's happening in the news on a daily basis. Israel is 0.02% of the world's population. 0.02. That is the people of God, they find themselves rising in significance on a regular basis. 
It's fascinating, fascinating. But the hope of all believers in Jesus is this city that Abraham longed for. He lived in the primary. He lived in the land of Israel, as God called him to. But when he was there, what was he doing? He was longing for the ultimate fulfillment of a place called the New Jerusalem. And, and I'll just make one other observation, going back to uh, Revelation 21. Just, it's fascinating. Verse 15 through 17. The angel who talked to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square. Now listen to this. As long as it was wide, he measured the city with the rod and found it to be 1,200 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. So what does that tell you about the measurements of the New Jerusalem Whatever this means, okay? I think there's something figurative going on here. It tells you that it is in the shape of a cube. Because it is the place, this text is going going to go on to say, that God lives in and dwells in. It is the place of his habitation. It is the place of his manifest presence. That should take you back in the Old Testament to two structures. One is the tabernacle. And it had a room that was the shape of a cube, 30 by 30 by 30. And in Solomon's temple, there was a place called the Holy of Holies where God's manifest presence came. And it was also the shape of a cube. I believe there was 60 by 60 by 60. And the new Jerusalem that comes down is equal in its height, its length, and its width. Why? Because it is the fulfillment of what was learned in the Old Testament tabernacle and the Old Testament temple, the, the, the place where God lives, you can't enter it. You're not qualified. But when I come to this description of the New Jerusalem that is cubed, that has written on it the names of 12 apostles and 12 tribes, here's what the text says. If you go on, and I'm going to let you read it, okay, just so I don't get bogged down. You go on into Revelation 21 and read it. Here's what it says. The gates of that city are never closed. They're never closed. Because through the work of Christ, every Jewish believer and every Gentile believer has access to the very presence of God. That's why Hebrews 4.16 says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. On what basis? With what qualifications? Covered by the blood of the lamb who purchased people for himself from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And if you know Christ, all of these blessings, all of these mind-blowing promises are for you. But there's a sober warning in verse 27 of this text. The gates were open. No one ever shuts its gates. There will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations, verse 26, will be brought into it. The glory of the nations. And then 27, nothing impure will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Folks, what does that mean? 
It means that I, Tim Hoff, as a sinner, am unqualified to enter the new Jerusalem where God lives and dwells, the place of his ultimate blessing. I am profoundly unqualified on my own. But I will tell you this. I will confess to you that I am a man who glories in Christ and places no confidence in my flesh. And the Bible tells me that that alone humbles me and qualifies me to be part of the blessing given to Abraham, that promise in you, all nations of the earth, blessed. I hope you take this picture and treasure it. I hope you think about the ramifications. Israel is blessed, yes. And you and I as Gentiles, are we don't work our way into it. Buddy up to people and get invited to the party. No, Christ invites us and qualifies us to come boldly into that place through his shed blood. And every person in this room who has trusted Christ has access, but verse 27 also gives a warning. Nothing impure will enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So that begs the question, right? Is your name this morning written in the Lamb's book of life? Have you come to the one who died for you, who was slain and rose again? Have you come to the victorious Lamb of God, owning your sin and trusting in his shed blood for your forgiveness so that you can be a child of God and know that I can go boldly to the throne of grace? Folks, that is... That is at the essence of Christian hope. This morning, if you've never trusted Christ, I would beg of you this morning to cry out to him and say, God, forgive me for placing confidence in my flesh. I want a glory in Christ. Today, I understand in a fresh way that he stood in my place on Calvary's cross. He bore the penalty of my sin. I have nothing to offer, and I am not required to offer anything but a broken person trusting in Christ. This morning, would you let God change your eternal destiny? The multinational reach of the gospel is present from Genesis 12 to the end of the Bible, and it drives everything we do. Throughout the Old Testament, I can see Gentiles coming into the people of God. Think of people like Rahab. Think of people like Ruth the Moabitess. Think of the Old Testament texts that talk about how a non-Jew can come into the people of God, proselytes, right? That's present throughout. It was always in the plan of God that the blessing of Israel could extend beyond its borders to people who would trust and place faith in him. And that is our mission. God says to Israel in Isaiah 49, you are the light of the world. And he says to the church in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. Both are chosen by God to make the name of Jesus gloriously known. Secondly, in application, 
All traditional advantages and disadvantages derived from status, such as race, financial status, and religion, are obliterated by the cross. There is no room for pride at the foot of the cross. There is only room for humble praise. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ. And then the last thing I want to remind you of is you're just passing through. Abraham got to the promised land, and what did he realize? I, have, I am enjoying the promise of God, but it is not the ultimate promise of God. So friends, be careful as we live that we keep in mind the big picture, the ultimate picture, as we fulfill our part in the primary picture of what God is doing, that he has something prepared for us that will uh, effectively uh, reduce us to tears and make us everlastingly grateful because of what he has done in the person of Jesus Christ. I close with the incredible promise of Revelation 21, 3 through 5. The truth of this city. He says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. That is God's ultimate aim in the gospel is that we would be his people and love him and enjoy him forever. He will live with them. He will not be distant. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. No more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Folks, that's a hope that God wants you and I to enjoy today. That's a hope that he wants us to live right now. That's what Abraham did, right? He got to the land of promise, but he lived as if there was something greater coming. And we do the same. We have the privilege of being part of the church, but the church is part of something more beautiful in the future. And by virtue of being part of the church through faith, we are included in these promises of God, a place that is free from pain, free from death, that is glorious and beautiful and all satisfying. And it comes to us as a gift of God's grace through a promise given to Abraham, finding its ultimate fulfillment in the work of the church. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, as we uh, conclude our discussion this morning, we are amazed. We're amazed at the lessons that we learn from interactions about Abraham in the New Testament. And God, we thank you that when we see the rest of the story, it is truly glorious. And it helps us in our current struggles because God, we get caught up in, 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 in the partial story, in this life, in its benefits, in its blessings, in its relationships, and that's good, God. But help us in the midst of the struggles to lay hold of the ultimate promise from God. A place where all tears will be gone, where death will be annihilated, where sin cannot come in, where the, where the glory of God, so comforting and so relieving and so glorious, will be enjoyed forever. I thank you, God, for these promises and for these blessings that come to us through Abraham. And I pray that we, as we go out into this week, will live like people whose citizenship is in heaven. And that, through the saving blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. 
I pray, Lord, if there's someone here this morning that has never trusted you, that right now you would knock on the door of their heart, draw them to a place where they acknowledge that I am a sinner and that Jesus is a great Savior, and save some this morning, Lord. We pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Let's stand together and sing.
Thank you that you fulfilled the promises to Abraham, to the Jew first, and then to the kingdoms of the world, which we are included in. Thank you that you died on the cross and shed your blood to save us from our sins. But we can only receive that when we come to you and receive you. We are so grateful for your great gift to us. We pray this all in your precious name. Amen.